Good evening and welcome, ladies. Nice to have you. You're from the states. Which which ones or one? Oh, I used to live in Chicago too. The north side. On the north side. You too? I do. Yes, I live in Uptown. Okay. And yourself? Same. California. Well, I live in California now. <laughs> okay, we're all together. Okay. So I'll speak a little bit about the nature of kirtan uh, tonight, and in light of uh, our guests, and uh, they're interested in the uh, in the subject, if you will. It's of course uh, very central to our uh, practice, and um, <clears throat> it uh, it in a way it enters the uh, the world. Uh, of time and space, if you will, um, in the form in which we um, engage in, in kirtan, it entered the world of our mental, sensual, intellectual experience in India in the uh, in the. Uh, latter part of the 15th and early part of the 16th century in West Bengal. Um, this was a time in India that um, there was a kind of a social uprising, if you will, um, in relation to the dominant uh, religious kind of perspective, which was one that... Um, that uh, interpreted the sacred texts, which were kind of the standard of knowledge at the time, um, and remained so for transcendentalists of the um, Hindu, yogic, and Vedanta perspective, a uh, vast body of, of texts covering a wide number of subjects, um, in an effort, so to speak, to capture all of the minds and different types of uh, psychologies in the world and bring them into a central focus and pursuit of um, of uh, transcending the uh, uh, cycle, samsara, cycle of birth and death. That <clears throat> seemed to be the real problem. And so... Um, the interpretation that was dominant at the time was one that uh, that largely distanced uh, common folk, in a way, from the Godhead, from from the Absolute, uh, by way of interpreting the texts as if they mandated that, in order to attain transcendence, mukti. Mukti means like uh, freedom. Hmm? Freedom from the demands of the mind and the senses, which are pretty um, 
oppressive. Uh, we're, uh, uh, we, it's hard for us to sit because <laughs> so many things are on the mind. And, uh, and uh, the senses are drawn to the objects of the senses and so forth. So we're kind of slaving under their um, influence. And we can't do even the simplest thing, just sit hmm, and be peaceful. That's all the Buddha did was sit, right? Easier said than, than done. It sounds easy, but because of the trishna, as he used to say, the thirst or desire for things and, and the thoughts about things and so forth, then it's hard to, hard to sit. But at any rate, to, to be successful in a, a trans, transcendental pursuit by which the mind and the senses, if you will, could be harnessed and our focus could turn from outward to inward pursuing kind of the adage that go within or go without that we really what it's all about is within ourselves in one sense we can kind of say that what life is about is what's out there and who's asking the question who's looking at it there seems to be a objective and a subjective component uh, to ex- existence as we're presently experience it. There are different ways of looking at this, a materialistic kind of philosophy uh, that's popular in the scientific and philosophical community today in the West is, is one that tries to reduce the subjective to the objective and relegate the subjective to an illusory hmm, um, experience. That means all our thoughts and feelings, even the sense that we are hmm, something qualitative, something other than just quantitative physical uh, forces randomly interacting. Hmm? Um, any thought that we're other than that hmm, is, is thought to be some type of illusion, some type of epiphenomenon like steam coming off of water that has no... No utilization, something like that, which is very obviously counterintuitive, because the way we live our lives is as if our thoughts and feelings matter, hmm? and we think that matter doesn't matter unless we matter about it, so to speak. Uh, matter being the objective world, we it, uh, uh, Infuse meaning into matter, so so the meaning, the value, the quality, the quantity, the qualitative features of life um, uh, are, intuitively speaking, most important. And it would, and from that perspective, it would seem like the physical world is dependent upon it hmm, for it to have meaning, and that from the subjective realm, there's there's an invisible non-physical kind of influence like our will hmm, that has um, um, agency, that has uh, capacity to uh, influence the physical world. That's how we all live our life, even if, even if we believe otherwise. <laughs> we all live our life like that, and it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's something you can't get away from. So it's good to have a, a talk that you can actually walk, if you will. So if, you, if your talk is that, there, that the mind is really only an illusion and, and it's really just a brain, all there is there is a brain, and somewhere in there there's this somehow the brain functions in such a way as to give this, create this illusion of a self, and then we start positing meaning and value. And so, um, 
but in reality, there's just physical forces interacting, which means there's no objective good or bad, really. There's no real moral uh, or ethical um, principles that are ontologically grounded, that are real. That are, um, and given that in that perspective, there's no real good or bad. It's just a kind of a human construct in that illusion, right? Um, if there's no good and bad action, ultimately, there's really no right or wrong thought either. So rationality kind of really goes out the window, even while we, often people employ it to advocate such a um, perspective. Based on, it is today, uh, the ability that we have or the focus that we have on understanding the objective world, trying to plumb its depths with microscopes and telescopes and and, and and mathematical equations by which we assume there are quarks and other things that uh, 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 and so so all the whole the whole pursuit is outward trying to understand the objective world and and gathering information from it how it works to come to a conclusion often as I say it's popular that it must all be physical. We just haven't found all the parts yet, how it works. And and um, and meanwhile, that pursuit and that philosophy, if you will, um, is one you, you really can't you can't uh, you can't walk that kind of talk because what's really important to you is, oh, my son, uh, he was in an accident. I have to go there. I have feelings for my wife. This my um, my job. I'm losing it, you know. I hope I get the promotion. You know, it's where everybody lives, really. It's kind of so. We, in as Vedantists, transcendentalists, then we have a different perspective. We think there is physical, objective matter, and there is there is a psychic form of matter too, called mind, where the realm of emotions, where it's kind of quasi consciousness world, and the problem with that world is that the the, the mind if you will, is pretty much focused on things. So there are things, and then we have a mind focused on things, which kind of makes the mind like things, although it's really different. But the beautiful thing about the mind is that it can be refocused. Hmm? That's what yoga is about. So to make a turn, to turn this mind from trying to find gold, if you will, to mine the uh, matter, hmm? And come up as they do, empty-handed. There's nothing of any meaning here. There's no value. There's no purpose. Hmm? It's really to come up with just like, I guess, sand pouring through your hands. There's nothing there. Hmm? So the sages and the mystics hmm, look at it differently, and they have a different technology, a different methodology. Hmm? for their pursuit. It's not telescopes and microscopes and so forth, which are extensions of our own senses. Empirically speaking, when we, we observe the world with our senses, then when our, with our rational faculty, we interpret the data. Hmm? The data just doesn't talk. <laughs> we interpret the data, and it could be interpreted in different ways, uh, obviously. Um, so, so no, nonetheless, the, the senses and a rational faculty, the senses but that we empirically experience the world and collect data from it with are obviously imperfect. I mean, you know, some of us are wearing glasses, so 
That's just a, a simple uh, example. But the glasses then are something that we create to extend the, the limited capacity, for example, of our eyes to see. Microscopes are further. We can't see with our eyes a- atoms or, or germs or whatever, but with a microscope, you can, with a telescope, we can extend. So we have created instruments, ref- refined instruments to, Im- to enhance our capacity to empirically collect data and then uh, re- reason about it. Hmm? But the, the yogin, he or she looks at it differently and acknowledges from the start that there's an objective aspect to reality and a subjective aspect. Hmm? And, and in our school, then, as I said, there's this gross kind of physical matter, and there's this subtle psychic matter. Hmm? And then beyond that is consciousness itself. The subtle matter is such that it doesn't have light. It's not luminous in itself, but it has the capacity to reflect light. Hmm? Like a mirror doesn't have light, but it could reflect light. Hmm? So consciousness, on the other hand, is self-luminous. It's like a light. It's self-luminous, and it can illuminate other things. Hmm? Uh, Different from a light, however, in this regard, consciousness is also aware of itself. So the light is not aware of itself. So that's a fuller extension of the idea of self-luminosity, to be cognizant. So this consciousness exists, sat, and it has the capacity to be cognizant of itself and of other things, like the light can light up other things, right? So chit and and it, while it has it exists, it has the capacity to cognize, to know. It also has the capacity to to love, or it is inherently uh, free from suffering that arises from material attachment and a narrow perspective of life that makes me think I'm a Californian, I'm a Costa Rican, I'm a man or woman. They're very limited concepts that change. Hmm? We could change our nationality, we could change our gender, we could change. Um, we change from old to young, and, and, and so the, there's something about us that, on the objective side, is always changing. I think I am this, I think I am that, when all the time I am. And I'm not this, and I'm not that, and I am is a much bigger concept than I am this or I am that, which are very limited. So that limited I am this or I am that is kind of oppressive. Hmm? It limits us. We don't feel comfortable with it, therefore we're trying to always expand the envelope, make it bigger, make the world bigger than what meets the eye or the mind. And whenever we break a record going a, th- a tenth of a second faster, or it's celebrated, we've, go- we've gone beyond. So really what that is about from our perspective is that the self, being this unit of consciousness that's not limited by matter, hmm, in the way that the, the, the physiological and biological self is, Hmm? Which, um, which is created, that biological and philo- physiological self is created, so to speak, by the consciousness being in proximity to subtle matter. So this self-luminous consciousness, the atma, kind of lights up the subtle matter, and then gross matter evolves accordingly. And so there's a biological and a psychological sense of self. A limited one, but in human life, this atma is coming up to the fore, so to speak, 
and it feels the world should be bigger than than it appears to be. So we're always trying to make it bigger. Hmm? Um, but the yogin's perspective is that that in order to experience the um, um, a fulfilling life, we should try, stop, stop, stop trying to expand the objective world and plumb the depths of the subjective world. Because if you just look into the objective world, you, you're just not going to find anything but quantitative values, velocity, depth, uh, weight, density, um, no meaning. Hmm? I mean, if those if those concepts have meaning, it's only because we because they're coming from consciousness, right? So it's a very common sense perspective that value lies within. Hmm? Now, the means to examine the objective world we've talked about, it's through the senses, they're faulty. A rational faculty may extend what we, what we, what we know. For example, we could see smoke and just by seeing smoke, we wouldn't know there's a fire, but by our rational fact that we could deduce where the smoke, there's fire, right? So these are kind of instruments of, of, of knowing. But, but the, when all that is channeled towards knowing the objective world, you don't find any meaning, you don't find any purpose. So this is disenfranchising human society from nature, from meaning, from value, from purpose, uh, we just try to expand the material envelope and create more possibilities for the senses, more choices, uh, and people become more confused. I mean, I'm confused. If I want to buy something, I, there's 10,000 versions of it. And you, how are you going to sort out which is the best one, which is the least expensive one? It's just, like, bewildering. Hmm? So more choices is not necessarily a, a formula for happiness, right, for fulfillment. Hmm? Maybe less material choices and a big choice that is yours to turn inward rather than outward. Hmm? Turn your focus there. Hmm? This is a new adventure, a new field. Hmm? And it, it's, it's a courageous adventure to try to explore the, the interior landscape. And there's an ancient technology for that, and that's called yoga, yoga sadhana, spiritual practice. Hmm? And it's it's it, it's actually a methodology a system. I mean, in the in the uh, Catholic uh, tradition, uh, a famous Catholic uh, monastic of the uh, previous century, Thomas Merton, he came to the, the conclusion that in the East they have some technology hmm, for exploring what we talk about in Christianity, a soul, um, and so he went. And he studied amongst the Hindus and the Buddhists, and he, then he, he imported meditation techniques and so forth into the monastery. And uh, uh, so there was there was this attempt on his part, and was fairly successful at the time, to of a kind of an interaction between the plural, uh, you know, t- different traditions and so forth. But the point I'm making is that the East has, b- based on its its um, texts of sacred texts, which predate the Western. Uh, revelation of the, for example, of the of the of the New Testament, and the Old Testament as well. Um, they speak not as much about believing, like in a miracle that someone rose from the dead, or you know, but um, but but rather 
in the nature about the nature of being, hmm? and 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 how to and 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 and, and it offers these texts offer a technology, if you will, for a vehicle to, for exploring that. And in other words, for example, sometimes in some traditions, like in the Abrahamic traditions of religion, it might be asked of someone in such a tradition, "Do you believe in a soul?" You might say yes. She might say yes. Sure. Yeah, I believe in a soul. Someone else may say, an atheist may say, "Well, I don't believe in a soul. I haven't seen a soul." So I don't believe in a soul. For us, if we're asked, do you believe in a soul, we'd say, like, wrong question. Now ask me, do I believe in consciousness? Stupid question. How can you not believe in consciousness? I mean, it takes consciousness to believe. Hmm. So, of course there's consciousness, right? Hmm. And we say what, what what's talked about as a soul, really, from the... Hindu and yogic perspective is is consciousness and what now what and so what is consciousness I don't by consciousness I don't just mean I'm aware of something I'm more conscious that, that there's someone else in the room that's an, a feature of consciousness but consciousness at its core is this quiet voice within this, in this that says I am I am and as I said earlier I am not this or I am not that, but I think I'm this, I think I'm that, and I keep chasing after this or that, as if to say, if I could add this and then it could be that, then I'd be fulfilled. But using the Zen kind of proverb, proverb more, less is more. Hmm? Moving away from this or that to that quiet sense within all of us, which is, which is a voice that speaks the only thing that we know for sure. I am. We know it. How do we know it? Objectively do we know it? No, subjectively we know it. So there's something to be subjective to subjective knowing. The world today is trying to get away from that. Unless you know it objectively and can demonstrate it by a third person, it's not real. But you don't know that you exist by such an experiment. You cannot make an experiment that will prove objectively that you exist, but it's the basis of everything that you do. <laughs> I mean, you believe it with, every, with your heart, soul, mind, everything. The whole world functions in that way, hmm? that I am. Hmm? And we seek to defend that I am, right? Hmm? So what is that I? Hmm? I is in the English language, and in every language, the word that means I is the most used language, word, excuse me, it's one of the smallest words in every language, and it's the most used word in every language, and it's the most misunderstood or least understood word in every language, I. So spiritual practice from the East is about understanding what is I, what is the I. Not a bad idea. In modern world today, we want to do things like go to the moon. Well, because we wanted to cross the Atlantic Ocean, I guess, from Europe to, well, of course, Columbus was looking for India, but so he could get lost along the way, and he might have been better off if he'd gone to India. Who knows what the world would be like now if that happened. Um, but anyway, um, um, okay, understandable, but that's like what I was saying earlier. We want to cross the oceans, we want to you know, 
fly, we want to go to the moon, we want to explore the outer world. So the question really is, if you go to the moon, okay, what will you do there? That's more important. Well, if you just do, do more of the same thing, well then, you know, it's not that exciting. Hmm? Because we're just chewing the chew. We're just chewing something over and over again. Like we, you know, we, we were very young, different from you guys. So we used to take the gum and put it under the desk, you know, and then after a while, maybe try it again, you know. Because you weren't supposed to chew gum in school, so you had to kind of hide it and then try it again. So, you know, that's basically what, 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 what we're doing is kind of like chewing the chew. You know, you want to buy a new house and somebody else just wants to sell it. Hmm? Right? That's so. That's what's going on, right? We're just using used goods and recycling them, and you know, and trying to get mixing up the basic stuff and trying to turn it into something that it'll never turn into. Hmm? We got a meal of appetizers, and all we got from it is indigestion. There's no square meal. There's a carrot that says just a little bit more, and you're going to have it. And so, maybe on the moon, on the dark side. <laughs> But what will you do there? And what are you really looking for? You're really looking for yourself. And you didn't have to go to the moon and spend millions and millions and billions of dollars, hmm? debate about it, and fight about it. You could have just sat down. Hmm? Yoga doesn't cost anything. Well, (laughs) it is uh, popular (laughs) business these days as well. But um, hmm. even then... Comparatively, what does it cost to sit, right? It's the cost of your ego. That's the cost. Your ego meaning your your identity born from outward movement, identification with the changing world and its currents of thought and so forth. And, hmm? An illusory sense of self, this material ego. Sitting is at the cost of that. Hmm? Hmm. And we're attached to that without higher knowledge, so that's a bitter pill. If I tell you, just sit. The Buddha just said, just sit here. I mean, (laughs) it wouldn't be a popular, you know, popular venue. (laughs) Here's what what we're going to do tonight. Sit. Okay. Uh, So, no, Um, it's costly in that sense. It takes a lot, right? Um, it, it's not outwardly costly, but but it, there, there, there's a price to pay, and 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 the, the the gain, of course, is it's the final goal. We call it enlightenment. Hmm? It, it's to arrive at a kind of to know the self and its prospect, its potential in transcendence. Is to is to arrive at a kind of knowing. By which one is overwhelmed with the sense that there's there's nothing more to be known. Hmm? I know everything. I mean, I, I don't know how to do this, that, and the other thing, but I know now. I know what it's about, what I am, hmm? and I'm zillions of times more beautiful and amazing than anything I could have thought I was in my head or tried to be by mixing it up with the objective world. Hmm? And as what I am at the at the core, is I'm a, I'm a I'm a unit of eternal existence. I'm not uh, dependent upon 
time and space. That means I have no beginning, I have no end. Hmm? Hmm? Nothing can kill me, nothing can drown me, nothing can... I mean, there's nothing to be... There's no fear. I mean, it's not just a bumper sticker either. Hmm? Really. No fear. And fear pervades material existence because we have a sense of existence that we've created in the mind that we need to protect. Hmm? And you can't protect it ultimately. It can't be maintained. So, But then you you arrive at a sense of being that it can't be taken away. Hmm? I mean... What can I say to you if I say, you can experience that you're eternal, and you say, what, is that? what do you mean, what is that like? You can't put it into words. You can use a word, eternal, you can say it's to be beyond time and space, it's become free from any fear or anxiety. These are kind of like negative ways. It's not like this, it's not like that. Hmm? But when you experience that, then, then there's, there's a knowing what it means to be eternal. Hmm? And... As a unit of being, I'm also the atma, the self is 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 cognizant. It has a capacity to know. It's not inert like matter. Something else might be, but it might not know. Hmm? But if you know, you have to be. Take it another step. If something knows, chit, then it has to be, right? As I said, but it doesn't have to be. Loving, or it doesn't have to be happy, and blissful. But if the self is blissful, if it has the capacity to love, then it has to be cognizant and it has to be also. Hmm? So sat means to be, chit means to know, ananda means bliss. Or to put it another way, sat means to exist, we exist. We're not like something that's here today and gone tomorrow. Hmm? And and we're we're a unit of being, knowing, and loving. Hmm? So hmm? that's an exciting prospect. That what what you might find pursuing the inner landscape and not trying to just reduce the inner world to the physical world by some by interpretation of data and stretching the facts and pasting together a theory that, uh, uh, that that nobody else agrees with and your contemporaries have a different one and, and so on and so forth. So here's a theory from the te- sacred texts. And there are people who, who, who would appear, objectively speaking, they experienced it, who just do this. That's all they do. Like, let's take the Buddha. He just sat there. He must have found something. Hmm? that enabled him to be not blown by the winds of the mind. Hmm? He emptied himself out of the world. He took the objective world out of himself, so to speak, Hmm? and left with his subjective I am. Hmm? So, this is an exciting prospect. And now here, uh, there are different approaches to to exploring that inner landscape and finding the self, so to speak. So, so this kirtan is one of them. So, um, and it's a very powerful one. And it appeared, as we do it, as I said, in India at a time when the interpretation of the sacred text that was dominant was one in which 
common people hmm, were thought to be distanced from any prospect of direct communication with their source. If we were consciousness, we're like a, a spark of it. Hmm? We're like a spark. Like, let's take a light bulb. Okay, it's a it's a certain, let's say it's a, it's a manifestation of electricity, right? It's actually from the sun. All our electricity here comes from the sun or the water. We have a microhydro system and we have solar so energy. So here is a mini sun, right? Hmm? Okay. Now, while that mini sun is like the sun, it's also different than the sun. And one of the principal differences is, well, it's a lot less bright, and it could be covered by a shade. We could put a box over it. Hmm? Or we could turn a switch and it would go out. Hmm? Right? But that doesn't mean electricity goes out. Let's say we put a box over it, so it's still there, but it's covered. So our position is something like that. We're a spark of consciousness, but we're covered by a box, and so our luminosity and so forth is, is obscured by that. Hmm? But underneath the covering of the objective world, there we, we shine brightly hmm, as a spark. But now the yoga is about connecting the spark with the source. If we were the whole thing, we wouldn't be in this predicament because the sun, you can't cover it with a box. <laughs> you can't turn a switch and the sun will go off. Hmm? So there's a difference between ourself as a unit of consciousness and our source. Hmm? It's kind of a quantitative difference, if you will. But we're of the same quality, so we, we work well together. Hmm? Whereas we don't work that well with the objective world because we're subjective. So this, this is kind of awkward. It's like a fish out of water, something like that. So now with yoga, we, we, we enter the inner world, and there's a source to the inner and the outer world, if you will. The sun has, gives light, and it also... Let's say it it, it produces uh, produces clouds too, right? So so the objective world, the darker world, if you will, and the subjective world both have their source in this analogy in 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 the sun. So we as a spark want to unite with the sun. Now there may be different methods to do that from the, from the sacred text. So we could. There's karma yoga, for example, the yoga of action. There's yoga of knowledge, uh, and there's yoga of love. Well, it's pretty clear that um, if you want to make a connection with someone, you could do it physically, um, you could do it mentally and intellectually, and you're probably getting closer to them <laughs> than than if it's just a one night stand. Uh, if you get to know them, what they're like, and then if you love them. Well, then your bond is is pretty con con conclusive, and it's one that can't be broken. You can break off the physical relationship. Uh, it does anyway. It's just not what it's cracked up to be. And <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I've been around, so I can tell you. <laughs> so like I'm free from the free love generation, too. So um, uh, I'll be 70 in just a few days, actually. So So... Um, so, in, in the mental and intellectual, also, that could be severed as well. We could get to know you mentally, and we just don't think alike. But if I love you, then even if you do something wrong or whatever, or we differ, it can't break the bond. Hmm? So, the yoga of love 
Therefore, in the Bhagavad Gita, one of the famous texts of the of the Hindus that is probably like popular from a, from a from a popularity point of view is kind of like as popular as the Bible is to Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, it very very it speaks about different disciplines of yoga and comes to the conclusion that the yoga of bhakti is is the most perfect type of yoga. It's a it's a it's a, it's, a, it's a, I'll give you some examples as well. Um, the yoga of action, or karma, karma yoga, is a type of a way to connect with the absolute by engaging in actions without being attached to the result of the action. That's pretty hard to do. Hmm? And then it only includes certain actions that you can do. Hmm? So it's, 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 it's limited. I'm just giving kind of a really brief overview. The yoga of knowledge is such that you can't do it unless the consciousness is already like pretty much free from material desire because you can't sit then hmm? because the desires are going to cost you to to to, to get up hmm? um, and also the yoga of knowledge is one what well here's an an aspect of it if you know in this that school what it means is you know that while you are pursuing enduring happy existence, it will not come from things that don't endure and have no inherent happiness. So the objective world, in all of its faces, manifesting as a tree that turns into a seed that turns into, uh, is not enduring. You can't anything you hold on to. It's going to be disappear in due course. So if you're attached, if you want enduring life. And you want to get it from things that don't endure, well, that's ignorance. So the person knowledge stops interacting then with things. Action means you have to interact with things. Hmm? So in karma yoga, you can only interact with certain things, and you have to interact with them in such a way as that the result, you, you can't be attached to it. It's kind of hard to be driven by a motivation to act without... Mostly we're driven by the results. I'm going to do this and I'm going to get that for myself. But because yoga is about deconstructing the false biological, physiological, psychological sense of self, then there's certain actions and that which drives and generates and fosters this material identity, this material ego, is the attachment. So you have to do the action without attachment to the result because the attachment fosters the ego, so if you do away with the attachment, then the ego starts to dissipate. But it's hard to do that. So, that's karma yoga. Then jnana yoga, you stop acting. Hmm. You, you, you know, you, you reach a point of knowing hmm, that, that, that you're able to resist interacting with things knowing that they're temporary and from them I'll never get enduring life, that they have no inherent happiness in them, no love in them. I'm not going to get anything from that. So I can sit now and I can stop interacting with things. So that's not easy to do either. Stop thinking. Stop interacting. I mean, now you take bhakti. In one sense, karma cancels out knowing and knowing cancels out acting. If I don't know, I act in relation to things. If I know, I don't. Hmm? But in love, you can act and you can know. 
it's a kind of knowing that's that that fosters a certain type of action that's spontaneous and natural it's it has action it has labor but it's 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 like not experienced as labor the labor of love they say right you can look at a mother nursing a child and taking and all the trouble that 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 takes and so forth all the work that she has to do and and look at it objectively and go whew, that's a lot of work hmm? but she loves it and so doesn't look at it that way right hmm? so just to give an example so in the yoga of love you can interact with everything hmm? You're not limited in what you can interact with. Hmm? Seeing everything in relation to the source and how to utilize it in the service of the source and so forth and, and so on. That's a whole science, but um, but here we're teaching about the yoga of love and one the central kind of practice of love, loving our source, hmm? Well, it's to sing about. That's pretty simple. You know, people love, when they're in love, they sing. <laughs> they sing in the shower, they hear a song, and they understand it as it fits their situation, and, <laughs> and so forth, right? Hmm? So it's, uh, it's, 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 it's very natural. And people like to sing otherwise. People like to dance. Uh, we, we offer, we, 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 we prepare meals. We offer them to, the, to, 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 to Krishna on the altar, and then whatever's left over, that as we eat, something like that. So, um, so uh, at the time that this kirtan, as we do it, became prominent, as I said, the dominant thinking was, or uh, religious kind of spiritual interpretation of text was that, in order to have a union with the absolute, first you had to be born in what's called a Brahmin family, hmm, in the caste system. A, a kind of an intellectual priestly family. So there are different types of, just like there are different types of psychology. So in the Hindu system, there were there were different uh, um, occupations that corresponded with different dispositions. So an intellectual disposition, that person would be a teacher, and a laboring disposition would be a laborer, uh, and so forth. And they were. It was pretty well defined, and so forth. Anyway, so, so you had to take birth. Say you were just a just a uh, everyday person, and uh, then you had to take birth and the next birth in a highly intellectual priestly family, and then in that family, you had to renounce everything and go to the Himalayas, and so it's like you were like one, two, you know, lives at least separate from your source, and there was kind of a a sense. Amongst the people, that, that, that this, this, there's got to be a better interpretation than that. You know, we've we, we got to be, we should be able to have direct communion with our source without having to go through such stages. And so, Nam Dharma was an answer to this. Kirtan, and there were different schools and different sadhus, saints, advocating different different forms of Kirtan. And among them, kind of the kind of the prince of Kirtan, is the saint whom we follow, Sri Chaitanya, who is thought to be like a combined form of Radha and Krishna, the kind of the heart of the of 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 the of the Godhead, the the the, 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 the loving uh, 
face, just like Buddha's the wisdom face, and maybe Jesus is the sacrificing face, and Krishna and Radha together, the, the loving face of, of the Absolute. So who you could sing about? Kind of hard to sing about the Buddha, you know. <laughs> you just got to be quiet. <laughs> right. And if you sing about Jesus, it's kind of like, whoa, kind of sad songs. It might feel like guilty. He did that. Oh, God. And for me. So, not a bad thing. But anyway, so this is a certain face of the Absolute, Krishna. And that face of the Absolute, the principal means for connecting with is Kirtan. So in Bhakti, one of the Angas, one of the limbs of the Angi, or the body of the school of Bhakti, is Kirtan. You know, Astanga Yoga, it has its limbs. Yama Niyama hmm? of, of Astanga Yoga. Like, you have to be celibate to do Astanga Yoga. You tell that to... Uh, they, they kind of pencil over that one in a lot of schools, but it's, that's the classical, from the classical yoga text and so forth. So, there are certain qualifications. Yama, and there are certain... Um, um, uh, there are features to the to the methodology. Hmm? We refer to them as angas or limbs of the body, for example, of yoga. So there are limbs to the body of bhakti, and the principal limb is is this limb of kirtan, hmm? and it can be sung anywhere, anytime, by anyone, regardless of what what uh, where they come from. It does away with classes and hierarchies, uh, so to speak. Um, uh, it simplifies all the rituals into into one, hmm? and um, and so the real personification of this uh, kirtan is the, is kind of the the founder of our particular tradition, Sri Krishna Chaitanya, and the biographies about him, of which there are many, are very extraordinary in terms of uh, describing. The effects of the, of the chanting that had it on him. It's objectively speaking, this is amongst the saints of different traditions across, across culture, culturally. There is no one uh, uh, saint who more embodies ecstatic love. Hmm? And the ecstatic love of, I mean, he would weep like a fountain hmm? in love and shower people around him. And so, I mean, the descriptions are very. And from many different authors, many, many, um, very extraordinary. And then there's a whole theology to the to the kirtan, how to get those effects, and and and, and so on and, and, and so forth. So, um, so this then uh, answered kind of a sense amongst the common people that you could directly commune with the absolute and the medium with our source. The medium is the name, the logos. Hmm? The logos, and incidentally, of course, that sense is there practically in all religious and spiritual traditions in the world. Like in the, the Bible, it says, "The beginning there was the Word, and the Word and God were one." To so the logos, um, it, it 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 implies a sound logos. It's a sound that has meaning, hmm? Hmm. and the sound, the nature of the sound is that it's one with the object. That it describes, so through the sound you can experience the object. Hmm? That's very different than if I say chair, chair. You know, 
I'm not, it's not going to comfort my back or my butt. But Krishna, Krishna, you're going to experience Krishna through the sound, and and this, the sound also will will cause other illusory interests to appear for what they are, and then you let go of them very naturally, like, oh yeah, I thought that was important, obviously it's not, so let go. So the renunciation is very natural in bhakti, it's not a forced thing. Hmm? Um, and so, um, uh, we find this idea, kind of generically speaking, of, of the that the name that there's a, there's a sound that represents the absolute the name and there could be many hmm? names that speak about different aspects of the absolute for example but the, there those those names are a medium uh, in the Jewish tradition I think there is a there is some idea that that the name of God is so sacred that you can't say it yeah so but it's saying the same thing there's a sacred, you know, so maybe in the Kabbalah or something you can get in there and say it. I don't know. Uh, the mystical side of the Jewish tradition. And then the Sufis have also, I think, 99 names and they chant on beads and so forth. So this is kind of pretty uh, universal. Even set from a secular point of view, we know that sound has 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 power. Hmm. Uh, considerable power. If you, he says, if you take to the streets, if enough people got in the streets with signs, you could get rid of the president. You know, <laughs> make sounds and clamor. Uh, that's uh, you know that's what happened in Russia, right? The wall came down because people made noise. Hmm? They made enough noise, made themselves heard, so to speak. So, um, of course, we have not. We have, scientifically speaking, we've kind of explored the power of fire. Electricity, hmm, water, but sound, more subtle, we haven't explored all the possibilities of it, but they're considerable. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, what, I mean, what's the power of, of, of music, right? Hmm. If the mu- you know, there's an old song, The Day the Music Died, well, then what, you know? What would, what would the world be like then without music, right? So, I mean, there's even string theory in science that, 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 the underlying everything are these vibrations, hmm? sounds, right? so harmonics. Um, so, this from a secular point of view, from a from a religious point of view, this is not a foreign or sect- sectarian idea. It's kind of like drawing from all of them and then ex- exploring that that idea exclusively, and you come up with a whole theology and philosophy around kirtan, hmm? which arguably puts you in a position to get the most out of the names of God. So that's what we're trying to do here. Hare Kirtan Ki Jai. Any question? Yes. How would you define love? Well, I would say that at its heart... Love is about giving. And it's about giving to such an extreme that it has no consideration of getting in the context of giving. As much as I attach getting to the giving, I'm not giving and I'm not getting 
what giving has to give. Hmm. You follow me? So the giving is the getting. Hmm. So while it might appear rationally or logically or mathematically that if you have ten and you give away five, you will have less. So it would appear from that point of view, from a logical point of view, that giving leaves you with less. But our experience is that by giving, we become bigger. We become more. We can't hold up what we've got. Just see what I got. But we, there's something about us that extends. Let's say, for example, you, you're a self-centered individual, like most people, and then you, you get a partner, and so you, you have to be a little less, less selfish, right? You wanted a partner for yourself, but you realize, well, he's got a self, too, and so we've got to work this out, right? Yeah. So, so it's kind of an opportunity to become bigger, actually. Do you follow? Hmm? Because you have to sacrifice a little bit now. Now your sense of self is extended beyond just your own immediate psychological, biological complex to that of another as well. And then, then you have, let's say you have children, for example. Then it gets, yourself is kind of getting bigger because you, you've extended yourself into, into, the, into your offspring as well. And then let's say some, sometime you decide to become, to become a pure, you know, politician, you know, an honest, you know, a Bernie Sanders or something kind of a guy, you know, just honest guy. Which is probably his, what his greatest appeal is. He just rings us. He's, whatever his policies are, he, at least he's honest. We'll go for it. You know, such a rare thing. Um, so, so as a politician, let's say, or let's say a Gandhi, you know, or like Kennedy said, you know, for whatever it's worth. Don't think what you can do for your, what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Now you're the country. You've identified with the country. So you, what's happening in that is you're giving, you're sacrificing. You're, now you're kind of sacrificing your family a little bit because now you, the country's going to take more of your time. Hmm? And so by sacrificing, in a sense, we're getting bigger. Now, so the key to loving is giving. That's one side of it, without expectation of gain. But the problem with giving is where are we going to give? So I said we give to a partner, we give to our children, we give to our nation. But none of these have the capacity to fully give back or fully return, so to speak, um, and give us the experience that the giving is the getting entirely. Hmm? I give myself entirely to something that can't take everything that I give. What is my, what is my capacity to give? Well, it should be unlimited. If I could find an, an object that could re, I could repose it in, that could take it all. Let's let's take a, a physical physiological example. In my body, there are many organs, right? One of the one of them is the stomach. Okay, the stomach, in one sense, is the center of the body because all the food needs to go there, right? If I take food and I put it in my ear. I think the ear says, you know, why was it always, always, always going to the stomach? What about me? You know? Well, that's not going to work too well. You're not going to get nourished, right? So we put it in the stomach. But the stomach is different than every other part of the body. 
because it consumes the food entirely, but transforms it and sends energy to every part of the body. So we want to give unlimitedly. We can't just give to our ear. Hmm? We have to find out. One side is you have to, love is about giving without expectation of return. So people talk about unconditional love. But if you want to pursue unconditional love and love something that can't accept the love entirely, like the ear can't accept the food, can't consume it, then you're not going to get the experience of giving. And you might think, oh, it doesn't work. So you need to find an object like the stomach that you could give to that can that is actually the center. We're on a circumference, and the circumference is maintained by the center. We have to give to the center, so we have to find the center. That which, by giving to, it can take everything, and in the context of taking it, it transforms everything and nourishes, sends it back. Hmm? So that center, that's what, that's, that, that's what, that's what God is. Hmm? Now, another thing about giving, in terms of this being the heart of loving, hmm? It's not about taking. Hmm? Love's about giving. Is that as long as we are identified with the body-mind complex, it's going to be hard for us to give unconditionally because we are under certain conditions. The body-mind imposes certain conditions on us, needs. So we're always kind of bargaining hmm, to get our needs met. Even if we try to be unconditional, we still have some needs and they need to be met, and so that's part of the bargain. So as long as we're identified with the body-mind complex, we can't give entirely. So yoga is, is, enables us to come out from underneath the body-mind complex hmm? and, and experience ourselves as a unit of consciousness, in which case then we, can, we're not, then we don't have to worry about being existing, or being threatened, or that our existence is being threatened. So now we're in a position to give hmm? without expectation of return, and then we have to give to our source. So loving is about giving unconditionally, hmm? and, and, and it, for it to be successful, hmm? we have to find the source to repose our loving propensity in. So now, you know, that's a metaphysical answer to your question. Of course, now, materially speaking, it, it it has, you know, a value, what I said as well. You don't want to love somebody else. You want to love a, a girlfriend or a, or a boyfriend or whatever. Um, so, obviously, um, in order to love them, they have to be your focus, not you. If you want, let's say, if I want to love you, then you your heart has to become mine, my heart has to become yours. You stay, you just give me your, we'll exchange hearts. So your desires become my desires. My desires become your desires. You and I become we. It's a union. It's a dynamic union. It's like a third thing. There's you, there's I, and there's we. Hmm? So love is about two coming together and without dissolving one another, into a third thing. Hmm? Um, and I would say this also, that love is born out of the womb of sacrifice. Hmm? Love is not just some infatuation that happened. Oh, 
and uh, you know, whatever, I get a crush on somebody. Real love is, requires some work, just like, just like music or poetry. It requires some math. You know, you, you, know, you think, wow, he's just got talent. He just sits down. And, but he knows the math of it. You know, there's math to music. There's math to poetry. There's math to art. Somebody's just not, not just, just painted on there. there there's, there's schools of art and so forth. So if we were to compare art, music, poetry to love, we can't ignore the fact that there's math that underlies it, so to speak. So there's kind of a wisdom to it. So love needs to be, to be wise. Hmm? Um, and uh, sacrifice is giving up attachments, not taking. So not taking is kind of a negative definition of loving. So it's part of loving. Not taking is part of loving. And then giving, on the other side, is full capacity. So if I'm taking, it's hard for me to give because I'm kind of like, I'd like an anchor down, you know? Bring this along with me. Hmm? You want to cross the river and bring a bag of gold, you might have to let go of the bag of gold. Hmm? So, so, but I mean, what I'm saying metaphysically, renunciation, detachment, you know, it's like not giving, not taking. That's like half of love and then then reposing one loving propensity in the absolute through a system of yoga but on the everyday level the same thing applies like I say if you, if you want to love you have to um, be prepared to sacrifice a mother's life is life of sacrifice and so there's an example love is born out of the womb of sacrifice so love is not take, about taking it's about giving Mm. Try that <laughs> on. What else? Anything else? What's the time? Do you have a question? No. no okay. All right. I think we'll stop there. Hari Kirtan Ki Jai. Gaur Nitharan Ki Jai. Gaur Premanandai.